0: Welcome to Conda Mason's Brown Rice Hour, a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Conda.
1: So welcome. I am back with uh, welcome to the Brown Rice Hour, everyone. And this is Conda Mason, and we have conversations here at the Brown Rice Hour, at the intersection of land, race, money, culture, and spirit. And so um, it gives a lot of latitude for a lot of great conversations. And I'm really, really fortunate to know and to have with me a lot of great people. And today. I'm extremely fortunate to have a very special guest. And my special guest today is Ms. Krista Tippett, <laughs> um, the creator and the host of the On Being Project, which is a public radio show and podcast about what it means to be human, how we want to live and who we will be to each other. Krista, welcome. Thank you, I'm
2: glad to be here.
1: It is so awesome for me to have you here. I can't tell you, it's just like a dream come true. I really am so thrilled to have you on on my podcast. It's pretty intimidating, I have to say, but you know, we're going to go for it. You are the (laughs) podcast
2: queen. I'm in good hands, I know that.
1: (laughs) So, okay, so I'm going to do a little bit of a bio on Krista Tippett. And so Krista is the host of the On Being Public Radio Show and Podcast. She curates um, the Civil Conversations Project and founded and leads the On Being Project, which is a nonprofit media and public life initiative that pursues deep thinking and moral imagination, social courage, and joy towards the renewal of inner life, outer life, and life together. I love that. Krista grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. She attended Brown University and worked as a journalist and diplomat in Cold War Berlin. And later, she received a Master of Divinity at Yale University. So she's been awarded um, a very prestigious award by um, President Obama, the National Humanities Medal, in 2013. And she's written three books, Speaking of Faith, Einstein's Gold, and Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. And you're working on another book too, Krista?
2: Well, kind of. I was supposed to publish a book. I was supposed to finish it this this year. But, um, you know, when you when you finish a book, because of publishing, if you're writing a book right now, you're writing into late 2022 and early 2023. And I feel like if we've learned anything in the last year is that we don't know what's going to happen next month. And it felt presumptuous <laughs> to me. To be writing it, I mean we have to make that future, right? Like that's what I have to do right now. Is throw my life huh. at that future. But I interesting. So
1: writing a book felt like it would make it too concrete before it's emerged? Is that
2: kind no, of No, it felt it feels too hypothetical and it feels presumptuous uh-huh. to me to be speaking to the world. I just feel like we're called to be faithful to everything we've learned and experienced and and the work that's that's there. And, um, yeah. I feel like speaking into that hypothetical world, um, is just, it's not on my heart. And yeah, I feel like, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of, I feel like what we do, what I do, what, what we culturally do in the next year and a half is really significant. And it's not, and the work is not just for the next year and a half, it's for the rest of the century. Right. Right but i think it's it's up to to me and to us to throw our lives at what we want 2023 to look like and mm-hmm. i don't feel like i can speak to 2023 i feel like what i have to do is live towards it <laughs> i don't know if that makes sense but it's been a strange it totally process. does
1: no mm-hmm. it does it's an unusual it's it's you know History is always like this. It always feels like this is the most precious, unusual moment.
3: Mm.
1: And it kind of is, really. Yeah. And so I get that it's, this is a very deep, unusual time. And to be able yeah. to, there's just so much up in the air. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and it would yeah. be hard
1: to, I, I get it. I get it. I am, um, well, we'll look forward to it when you're ready to let that book out of you. Yeah. It'll be a wonderful, I'm sure, and very um, profound undertaking. Um, I want to, um, we've begun, but I'd like to go back a little bit and open up sacred space. Um, This is kind of my tradition is opening up sacred space. Um, And how I do that, I just honor um, the ancestors and the land which we are sitting on. And I am here in Louisiana right now, which is my new home. And I happen to be in New Orleans right in this moment. And um, this is Choctaw country. This is the land of the Choctaw people. And mm-hmm. so I just like to honor that. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about where you are, Kristen.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, on Lakota land um, in Minnesota. And uh, I've, also, I've also thought a lot this year, I was just back home in Oklahoma, um, and, you know, pondering how I grew up in a town called Shawnee in a county called Pottawatomi oh. next door was oh. Tecumseh. And I, you know, had so that the names of the places remained, which is kind of interesting to me that all the names yeah. were kept, but the stories, all the loss, all the significance, who those people were, who those peoples were. Yes. Um, was not transmitted
3: yeah
1: -hmm. yeah and i bet now going back like you said just recently to oklahoma with Mm -hmm. this consciousness that you have now is in your face
2: yeah yeah it's kind of shocking actually
1: well I want to um, say that I know that you, I love the way you start your podcast with the, the same question that you ask people about their faith. And I have a question that I also start my podcast with. And, um, you know, this is called the Brown Rice Hour. Yeah. And it's the brown rice hour because, uh, for, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a play on a lot of reasons why I call it the brown rice hour. As you know, I'm also working with rice these days, but brown rice also changed my life. It was when I became a um, micro, microbiotic and all of that back in the day. And, and it's, um, it's just a grain that has a lot of significance to me. So I'm a foodie as well. I love food and I, Always, I find it interesting to ask people this question because it, it shows all kinds of ways that you get into their personal lives. And that is, I ask the question, what as a child was your comfort food? And who prepared that comfort food for you?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I wish I had, I, I, I don't have a a. a an answer to that question that is as meaningful as I wish it were, but it actually, the answer I have also tells a story of our country, right? I grew up in the 1960s with a mother who studied home economics. And, you know, it was this moment, I feel like we're just part of what we're unraveling now is what we did to food in the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. And it was this discovery that you could get foods out. I mean, I thought of, Honestly, food came out of boxes and cans, and you know, those containers that um, biscuits, right? Biscuits and cinnamon rolls and cookies were in as cardboard containers. So, but so, so that's actually most of my food life was what was considered to be progress. And mm-hmm. it's the best example I know of. You know that innovation is not always progress, right? And the past, and 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 so um, because it was high innovation. uh, At the same time, my grandfather, who was a Southern Baptist preacher, always had this plot of land outside my hometown, and also we'd really. uh, This is kind of what you're getting into now, Conda. Like farming was looked down on. You know, in this tiny little town I came from, where I mean. I don't know what was better, but somehow it had been diminished. But my grandfather always kept this plot of land. And when he retired, he moved there and he had a few cattle and he had pecan trees and he had a garden. And we would go over to his house. And I can still taste to my, to my grandparents' house. And they always cooked the exact same thing. My grandmother always cooked the exact same thing. And my parents made fun of it. But I love that meal so much. I never wanted anything else. It was fried chicken and cream gravy and biscuits and um, vegetables from the garden, um, uh-huh. tomatoes and onions I, and okra. I loved okra. You know, it's so hard to get. In, you can't get it in Minnesota. And um oh. My grandfather made these sweet, he made, he grew these onions that were so sweet. And so that's, that's my favorite food memory. But it's like kind of off to the side of my, my yeah. primary food life.
1: That, yeah, that is so interesting that, um, that those two juxtaposing yeah. very different. Right at home was the was the the can, and then there was the, the real yes. farm. She's you know? with. So, so as a child,
3: <laughs> yeah. But
1: here's the good thing: is that as a child you got to know that food actually grows out of the ground; it doesn't I come up in a can. Yeah, you got to know that because of your grandparents. Yeah. 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 It's important. A lot of kids these days, they really don't know. So Mm -hmm. I'm I I love that you're talking about your 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 grandparents and your grandfather. So he was a Baptist minister. I know that you grew up in an evangelical culture in Oklahoma. Is that correct?
2: Well, I did. But um, we would never have called it evangelical. uh, Right. I mean, it's kind of the way we define these things now. It was probably kind of. Part Pentecostal, part evangelical, but okay. Um, yeah, it was kind of middle of America, Southern Baptist, um, but not and not at all. And you know, when we say evangelical now, you also have it also has political connotations, and none of that was there. Yeah,
1: yeah. sure, sure. It was just the it was the way of worship. Yeah, and it was and... really
2: the center of life, center of life. Mm-hmm.
1: And then. Did you not leave for about a decade and oh yeah, moved away from religion
3: yeah,
1: and for about a whole decade and then you came back I guess a decade later yeah. Can, what, who were you who who was the Krista that emerged coming back because I mean uh, afterwards I mean you went to, you went to Yale Divinity School so you went yeah you know what was that process in in the middle yeah War and
2: I you know. I got I I got headed in that back in that direction of just getting curious about religion, and also mm-hmm. about my own spirituality, my own inner life. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I got, not because I was kind of positively introduced to that, but because I I spent ten years pretty much being immersed in politics and really high policy, geopolitics of divided Berlin at that time, and it was so exciting. And I was working for an ambassador who was a nuclear arms expert in the end. And I was living in divided Berlin, which was this incredible social laboratory. I started there to see the limits of what politics and even high policy not only could address, but was interested in. Uh And I was interested in that human level of how people... Uh Create lives of meaning and dignity, or fail to do so. and I saw in Berlin that it it that people did that, and it, it wasn't dependent on the circumstances you were handed. You could be handed the worst of circumstances and create a beautiful mm-hmm. life. You could be handed the best of circumstances and have an empty life. And I just to me that was that was as fascinating as nuclear arms. And it was a little hard for me to justify. The importance I attached to that, but what I started to realize is it's our spiritual traditions that have have honored the importance of that. And so very gradually then that led me to say, okay, if I'm going to take this seriously, then I want to study this and I want to see what's there.
1: Wow. Well, so it actually, so I didn't realize so that the Berlin experience in your life actually brought you to back to this spiritual inner inner life looking at this outer life as yeah. you are in Berlin.
3: Yeah. Interesting.
1: And so, you know, you have a way, Krista, of talking about faith that it 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 doesn't seem to alienate people. I mean, sure, mm-hmm. there must be people that it alienates, but by and large, you have this way of talking about faith that I love that is so inclusive. And I I come to think that it has to do with so many sources of input. When I think about your life, like some of the things that you just described, I think about um, all the many people that you have set your life up to talk to. You've set your life up so that you have these conversations. You're constantly getting this input from so many people, you know, all over the world, all over the globe, right? Theologians and scientists and activists and poets. I love that. All the many different types of people that you bring together that you speak to. And it I wonder if I, I, I thought about this last night. I'm wondering if it's almost like you have the ability right now, or I don't know if you're consciously or unconsciously doing something, but it feels like you have all the ingredients to put together almost a new kind of spirituality. Mm almost a new kind of spirituality that I decided last night is called t- tippetism.
2: <laughs> Don't tell anybody in public radio, okay?
1: <laughs> I won't. But I'm thinking that there's this new thing called tippetism. And really? if there was this new spirituality called tippetism, that is this amalgamation of all the input, what would you say would be its foundation or its What would be at the core of it? What does it
3: incorporate? I
2: have never thought about this question. (laughs) Um, But I think so. You know, um, it's it's great. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel um, talked about something he called depth theology. And. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 he's a good figure to illustrate this because i mean he was from i don't know how many generations of east european rabbis i mean he was just he, his lineage was so deep and so particular um and yet what he learned in his life was that when he you know he was he, he he was in that front line of people marching to sell with you know into into Montgomery with um with Martin Luther King Jr. And um and he had all these he 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 had he ended up having all these friendships and these dialogues with with people who were as deeply rooted in their tradition as he was deeply planted in his and spoke a language, right? A vocabulary and had um, this world of ritual and ways to analyze uh, the human condition, as well as who God might be or what faith might mean. And he, he talked about how when, um, when, you know, for him and also for me, it's, it's not about, it's never been about figuring out what we all have in common. Right. So I think that's the question. Sometimes people have asked me across the years. Um, so all these people you've interviewed from all these traditions and what is the thing they have in common? And that's just, I mean, I could probably come up with an answer, but it's not the interesting question to me. What's interesting to me is how, when we speak from the depths of, and I don't just mean belief, but practice. I'm also not that interested in belief. I'm interested in what's lived. And, and you get, you hear these echoes and yet so many different words and ways of enacting and understanding and living these things. And I think we need all of that particularity to point at whatever we're pointing at and also to honor the particularity of of our experiences. So I don't think I gave you an answer, but somehow it would have to do with the kind of, the paradox and the beautiful paradox that we don't have to sacrifice depth to come together. We don't have to sacrifice depths to profoundly know our kinship, and and when we bring those two things together—our depths and particularities and our kinship—we teach each other, and and we're all rooted, and we're all growing. It's agriculture <laughs> metaphors, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, I um, yeah the answer what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing too, is that tippetism is still, it's almost the answer you gave about your book, mm. that it, there's no book yet, that mm. there's this emergent soup that's happening. And, and it's something like there's, it feels like that there's this this this, um, this necessity almost not to, put it into some kind of container yeah. but to allow, but to allow.
2: You know, I don't think I'm a leader of this. I don't think I create it. I think I have, I think I have opened a space mm-hmm. for people to recognize something that they're, mm-hmm. that there is something larger that they're part of and to recognize mm-hmm. kinship across boundaries that, They would never have imagined there was kinship and just for people to feel less alone in being really, really, uh, you know, enjoying and exploring this interplay between being grounded and being open, this creative interplay. Yeah.
1: But I think that that's what 21st century leadership is. Mm -hmm. It's it's really, it's not the kind of leading that we think about. It's the kind of opening of space.
2: Yeah, it's right? not handing something down.
1: No, it's not. Right? It's not handing something down. It's allowing, opening, creating the conditions for yeah. folks to be able yeah.
3: to, I to explore
1: yeah. within them. And that's what you do. You create those conditions. Mm-hmm. And so, I still think tippetism is a is <laughs> <Okay>. a <laughs> is a thing. I think it's a thing, Krista. Mm-hmm. I do. I think about all the people. I, I, you have this unique space, honestly, mm-hmm. where because of the breadth of people that you speak to, I don't I don't know anyone who's touching all those spaces, and
3: mm-hmm.
1: and they have to touch you. You know, you're touching them, and they're touching you. Mm-hmm. And as they touch you, you get nuggets everywhere. And they start to develop and continue to to merge into your thinking. Your thinking must change yeah. all the time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well what I feel is um all these conversations come into conversation with each other inside me. <laughs> inside you, right. Yeah. And that is exactly that's really that that's that's fascinating. I mean it it and, and I Yeah. I think
1: about when you, the people that you choose, I mean, there are so many people that want to knock on your door and say, hey, talk to me. But I think that if I were in your shoes, I would be choosing what is the next thing that I want to know? Who has that voice of the next thing that I was missing inside of me that I want to hear from versus, I mean, you know, it sounds very personal and, and, but I think that that's how I would look at it. And I don't know if you do or not, if you think about, what is this piece of nugget of of interesting knowledge that I want to engage in? How do you choose
2: your people? I think, you know, it's, I, I don't think of it that way. I think of it as um, I, I, I'm always, I feel like I, I'm, uh, I'm a, I'm a listener. Right. And, and, and I, and I think our organization is a listening organization. And so um, I'm listening to my guests, but I'm all, also listening to the world and to the culture and to my listeners. And so uh-huh. I think also there's some beautiful thing. There's so many beautiful things about getting older. You know, I, I feel like at 60, I turned 60 in 2020. And as you know, and um, I trust my gut so much these days. And, you yeah. know, it's so wonderful to yeah. live into your gut. And so, especially in this last year, it's it's a combination of, I mean, so... Especially in this last year, I was so attentive to what I was feeling and how I was reacting and responding and what's happening in the world. But then I'm always also kind of testing that against, is this what other people are saying too? And sometimes I, you know, I think my gut is good. So, so I feel like I, I, I do, I, I felt, especially in last year, I was, I was in tune with something, but not always. I mean, I, I have to. So, so it's this combination of what I want. And then feeling around for am Mm -hmm. I, is that longing part of a larger Mm -hmm. longing? Yeah. Is
1: that what the world is asking for? Mm -hmm. And the people, people are asking for so much right now. Yeah, You know, I, I decided in this interview that I wanted to talk to you about um, the lens that three people that you have interviewed Mm -hmm. um, that um, speak deeply to me as well. And, I, I'm looking at them as the three black men in your life. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because the black voice is so important to me and yeah. obviously, and, and, and how you, um, how you access that, the, the black voice and what you do and bring it in and how you integrate it. And, um, and so I just wanted to um, highlight and talk to you through this lens of three right. black men in your life. Okay. And uh, I wonder if you can guess who they are, but I'll I'll, I'll just tell you in case you yeah. guess <laughs> One is the first one is Dr. Vincent Hardy.
3: Yeah, right. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the second one is Resma Minnicky. Yeah, and then the third is Brian Stevenson. Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I just so Most- you know, do you know Jason Reynolds? I just we're just. That's he's also an amazing younger younger man. Younger, yeah. So there are there are many black men in my life these days, and of course there's (laughs) Lucas Johnson, (laughs) my my head of my social healing, but Vincent introduced me to Lucas, right? Right. Right. Vincent, you want to tell people who
1: Vincent is? Yeah, Vincent
2: Harding was when I met him a civil rights elder. um, He you know in the southern freedom movement he 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 was in chicago and he was in the mennonite tradition which is a beautiful peace peace building peacemaking tradition deep deep lineage um and he he was a young man in his 20s and he met this young man in his 20s named martin luther king jr and ended up in atlanta and um uh he so he he not atlanta <laughs> atlanta no where were they yes they were. Atlanta. atlanta yeah but anyway he ended up being really at the heart there's so many so many incredible people leaders change makers social creatives from that movement that whose, whose names we don't know so i you know i think vincent is known by some but not He's not known know. by all, but he helped write he, he wrote he helped write King's Vietnam speech. He Vietnam ran, speech. he ran the Mennonite Center. He was absolutely right in there in the formulation of the uh, philosophy and practice of non non-viol- nonviolence. and um, and he was just an extraordinary person. you know, after kind of the height of the movement, he dedicated himself to young people. and also to bringing, he created this project called Veterans of Hope. And that's how he described the people who had been involved in that movement of the 60s and 50s and 60s. And he brought young people um, into contact with these veterans of hope. And Mm -hmm. he was just one of these people when I met him. And I, I suspect he was always like this, but certainly when I met him, as an elder, he was just, you just sat at his feet. He, you know, every yeah. word and he's influenced so many people, you know, Isabel Wilkerson comes to mind. I mean, I'm always meeting people of a new generation who are, who are being formative and who are formed by Vincent. And yeah, he introduced me. I, so, so I interviewed him and it was amazing. And it was a, such a gift to introduce Vincent Harding to a lot of people who, who didn't yes. didn't, you know, hadn't known about yeah. him. And, um, and then I remember I invited him. So we stayed in touch, and we kept somehow intersecting. And then um, I invited him to come to something I was doing. And he, at first, he said yes. And then he called me and he said, um, Krista, I've been thinking about that invitation, and I want you to invite this young man named Lucas Johnson. And he <laughs> said, he said this young man embodies for the 21st century what we were, what we what we started in the 20th. And, and as you know, now Lucas, you know, I got, so I got to know Lucas and he now is one is a co-leader with me of the project. And so I, I feel this connection to, and Vincent was, was like a father to Lucas. Lucas, uh, Lucas refers to Vincent as uncle Vincent. And so I feel this very direct connection to him in everything I do now.
1: Yeah, I, I think he, um, you know, you're, I, I was listening, I've listened to it a couple of times, your interview is 2011, I think, with, with, with uh, Dr. Harney. Yeah,
3: that's and
1: um, I, I love, so there's this overall, we were talking about faith, right? There's this overall who and the, the kinds of conversations that you're having. Inter, intersecting that is the conversation of democracy, yeah. particularly when we talk yeah. with Black Folks, democracy and faith and spirituality, that yeah. intersection come together. And and, yeah. and Vincent Harding, really, um, that conversation went into that democracy and faith and that intersection yeah. there. And he says also, he talks about what does it mean to be truly human? He asked that question. Yeah. I'm wondering, did you get that from him or did he get that from, was he playing off of what you had said or no. how did that work?
2: No, that was just, that just emerged. I mean, I don't know how much I was, I was probably, yeah. You know, but he said it in his own way. He said the question of what it truly means yeah. to be human is, is the question at the heart of religion. And it's also the question at the heart of democracy, which is obvious right. to him, but it's not obvious in the way we've constructed our democracy. And he also right. said, and I always quote him on this, you know, when it comes to being a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious um, yeah democracy we are a developing nation developing nation we've only been at this he says for 50 years and it's it's important to remember that i mean we're just but when he said that to me a few years ago i think right now that feels very present in a way that it didn't feel as obvious 10 years ago
1: Mm. yeah with all the developments that's happened particularly in 2020 yeah I, I love, I love, I I quoted those, those are my passages in that interview as well that I wrote down that I love. And I, I, you say that it's, it's obvious democracy. He says, democracy is simply another way of speaking a question. And that religion is another way of speaking about that question. What is our purpose in this world? And is that purpose related to our responsibilities to each other and to the world itself? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Can you, can you just kind of tease that out for people, democracy, religion, and, and, um, and yeah, and spirituality. Well, can you tease that?
2: Out? Yeah. You know, he, he also says, the, you know, the question we need to be asking is how do we bring our best capacity and gifts to these endeavors mm-hmm. and to each other? And I think that, um, you know, I, something that I've started saying in very recent years that to me is, is another way of saying what Vince is saying there is that this question of what it means to be human for us in this century, um, it, that's an ancient question, right? That's the oldest question. Um, and all of our religious traditions are, are special places where that question has been picked up and carried forward and addressed. Um, mm-hmm. In our century the question of what it means to be human is inextricable from the question of who we will be to each other. And, and right. And that is what our, what, what our spiritual traditions point us to take seriously and honor. And it's, it's not the question around which we've organized our political system, but if we don't live into who we are to each other, we, we don't, I think we don't have any chance of flourishing. I think we, you know, perhaps survive. I think that question in our bones, in our hearts, in our brains, in our labor is the only way we walk generatively into our ecological crisis, right? Into our, our racial um, I don't want to call it a reckoning, right? Like just, let me say it this way, it is that we walk towards human wholeness. Um, we have divided ourselves up in so many ways in so many artificial ways that are really at the root of all of our great crises. And I don't want diversity. I want a whole society in which everyone is their whole self and we have whole institutions. That is about understanding our belonging to each other. I mean, and, and science is in that picture too right? I mean, we are all made of stardust, right? I mean, we have so many ways to understand this now. That's now a scientific fact. It's not a line of poetry. It's
1: a fact. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, he ends by asking, is America even possible?
2: Is America possible? Yeah. America but then impossible. he said, Vincent Harding said, yes, if mm-hmm. we make it so, yes. We and so. I feel like if, if Vincent Harding <laughs> could, could, state, could state that, yes, then I am called to state that, yes, and figure out what it takes to live that.
1: Yeah. You know, it reminds me of the, when I think about democracy and um, Nicole Hannah-Jones is the 1619 Project, right? Yeah. And um, she states that, that our democracy, that actually it's Black folks have had the faith in democracy, more yeah. than anyone,
3: yeah. and
1: that we have brought it. If it's going to happen, it's because of the work that Black folks have done. Because we believe in it, we have more faith in it than than the white forefathers who created it. Yeah, because we are working towards it. It was like you said, "There's democracy." You said, "There's democracy." Let's make it happen. Right. And so that is really um, one of the things that I. I look at and I think about, and what is it? And I think because when I think about, because um, democracy is leading towards that liberation that we've been looking for, that we've been needing yeah. and wanting, right? That we have yeah. walked towards as a liberation. When you feel like you have already had that liberation, for example, as white-bodied people, and I'm, we're going to get into Resma now, yeah. the white-bodied people. And yeah. when you feel like you already have that liberation you're not looking for. It. I think that that is why it's okay that it's not okay, but they're talking about cognitive dissonance. There's like as a white body person, you want there to be democracy and when you see that unevenness actually gives you a head start somewhere, it's yeah. like, well, that's okay. You yeah. know, and that's the cognitive dissonance that I know white body people are living with. Yeah. Um because, as opposed to when you look at, at at bodies of culture who are working towards that, and that is why I think democracy sits so squarely as yeah. a part of what's important and what we work towards what do you what do you think about
2: that yeah yeah, and uh and i you know, I interviewed Resma meicam before before the pandemic hit, and it was so powerful. And, the, and actually that was our show that was scheduled for the week that the lockdown occurred right so it it went up on third a Thursday it goes up on Thursday to the satellite mm-hmm. and that was the week that that Broadway closed and you know states of emergency and work we sent our everybody sent their employees home and um we we you know and even resma agreed we said we can't this show is so powerful and we can't put it on the air right now because people are right we're in a we're in a crisis in fear mode. And this is a show that needs people to sink into their bodies and think hard thoughts and feel hard things. And, um, I remember one of my producers said, Oh, it's so, it's so tragic that we can't put this on the air. And <laughs> I said, we can't put it on the air because people won't be able to hear it. And it's really important that they hear it. And I also remember saying, Pro- Sadly, I promise you, we will have a moment before too long when we when 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 we have to talk about race and we put Resma on the air. And right. And and, and, you and know George happened. Floyd is murdered in our city where in I city. Where, where Resma lives. Right. Where the three of you, where the two of you, where live. we all live. So, um, yeah. And, you know, just there's so much we could talk about there, but I, just to what you just said, part of my reaction, I mean, part of what's on my heart. Well, first of all, I, yes, I, you're right. I have bringing a person, a voice like Rezma or Vincent or Brian or um or Jason Reynolds or Isabel Wilkerson or, you know, on and on and people who are less well-known um, that Um, is such an honor. And also one thing Rezma made me, so aware of is how important it is that I, that white people talk to white people, right? And that, and that we not all, all right. And that black people talk to black, that we don't all have to be in the same room, partly because our, in some way, you know, he, he talks about trauma that's there in all kinds of bodies. And in some cases, in, in the, in the case of white people, there was trauma and that we're, you know, we did this terrible thing human beings did, which is project, just pass it on, pass on the trauma to others. Um, and so, but it's not actually always healthy or helpful, uh, for us to do our work together. And, um, so when you talk about, you know, I was just last night with a group of white friends and, um, the conversation that is on my mind is, um, I'm a white person. I have a lot of stability and, and power of, in a, you know, in in my way, and it doesn't cost me anything to be anti-racist, right. To, to make that move, to declare that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet people like me, what we have to do is talk about where we, where we send our, like, our commitment to local schools, right? Like it's where the rubber meets the road. It's not about making statements. It's about how we live. And there are structural impulses, especially when it comes to, you know, how you just, you want the best for your children. And that has created, you know, what that has meant and what it has spun out into in terms of the structures of our life and the effect on other children. And so- What I'm like aware of is there's this thing that happens in progressive, comfortable circles of, oh, we're the ones who have Black Lives Matter signs in our yards. We're the ones who say we're anti-racist. We're the ones who are checking our language. And those people are, those white people are, you know, waving Confederate flags or telling pollsters that they don't agree with Black Lives Matter. But I think we're all on a pretty level playing field in terms of so so i think it's for white people people in white bodies to yeah, open yeah. that hospitable space for other people yeah. in white bodies for us to work this out together yep because it's not good enough for people in black and brown bodies for white people to create these artificial you know this we we got to get our act together i
1: agree I agree. And I'm happy to hear you say that. And I think that that's what I, it was interesting to watch that interview with you and Resma. I watched it, I don't know how many times I've watched that interview. And I think it's the first time that I saw your being, like, I guess I would say you were challenged not to be challenged in a way there was like this challenging (laughs) and I wish I could see you because he, he mentioned at one point, the red face that you had and, you know, and you're, animated, your voice. I could tell it was like, he was pushing, he was pushing. And it was so, it was the first time that I ever heard. That's why Mm I listened to it over and Mm -hmm. over. And Mm -hmm. it's like, that is what it is. There's like, I know that we want, and you as someone who is, um, who sees humanity the way that you do, mm-hmm. and knowing that we doing this together, how do we be together?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And understanding what Resma was saying, in which I, I 100% agree, and a lot of Black people do. We have to do this in separate spaces. Yeah, we yeah. have to do this because there's too much trauma and too much retriggering yep. trauma, and there's too much unsafety. It's just unsafe. Yep. And like he said, you know, when you look behind you and you look up, and you're thinking. You know, I'm in a room with these people who I love or, or I don't know whether whatever my relationship is, there's still always this suspect of what's the next thing that's what's the shoe that's going to drop, who's going to say something that's actually actually uh, ignorant or yeah, comes out of a space that they don't, you know, completely unconscious, yeah. But and
2: hurtful. and there's this, there's this unspoken need for you to offer forgiveness and for you to help in the healing and that's not your job right Right. and it's bad for you right to be put in that that's exactly right and
1: those are the things that
2: it takes
1: a lot of uh, doing the deep work to understand and so Mm -hmm. i agree i think that again i go back to Black folks and democracy pushing democracy because it is a liberation theology, really. That is what democracy yeah. is. And when you need when you are heading in that direction because you don't have those basic needs met um, based on a structural system, right? So it's not it's not just interpersonal, but the structural system of it. But yeah. or when you do, when you're on the other side as a white body person, you have that. You can look beyond. And so then that's why it's so easy to just not see the truth
3: yeah. of
1: what is happening here. And so you're saying, and white people talking to white body people talking to white body people, it's exactly what has to happen.
3: Yeah.
1: It has to happen in the interpersonal level. It has to happen mm-hmm. on, on the collective level. And I, I think about um, some of the, um, the work that you're doing. And you have such a broad audience, you have such a platform, Mm -hmm. and you impact so many people. Mm -hmm. And to see your vulnerability with Resma was really wonderful. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And to see and to hear your growth from that conversation, it's like, what is, and then Reverend Angel as well, you know, that conversation, right. right? Yeah. Another one. I'd love to get on the black women's tip too. This is the women's <laughs> <Yeah>. tip. <laughs> yeah. But the black women's tip is another one. Right. And yeah. I'm just wondering um, how, like you said, you have a position, you have a platform, mm-hmm. you have a position of power.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you intentionally use it to do this interwhite healing? How what do I it?
2: use it? Well, first of all, we're, we're modeling something now. I'm so I want to be clear that when that moment happened with Reza, um, where I think what I was saying to him is he 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 started talking about white supremacy, white supremacy, and I was going to instruct him on the fact that if you if you <laughs> if you use uh, we that we can't way, hear that. Right, well, <laughs> well when I was when I was trying to talk to him about is is how I've been so attentive over the years. I mean, I've this has just been a fact. That, if mm-hmm. you start using language like that, like right, it's at the headline. you're going to lose right. people when the conversation starts. So it's a strategic way of not not saying it, but getting people to a place where they can hear it. But he kind of basically said to me, <laughs> "No, make people uncomfortable." and <laughs> right. and what's interesting, what I want to i you know what feels important to me is to hold up that um one of the great things that happened, I mean, great, terrible that it had to be a great thing that this happened, but there, there was a breakthrough. And I think because people were so softened and grounded by the (laughs) pandemic that white, a lot more white people got comfortable with being uncomfortable, got familiar with, Oh, this is, this is a move I have to make. And Yeah. So, so that was kind of amazing. So, but I do think that I have experienced what people say to me is that having me be willing to, to, you know, we could have cut that out, right? (laughs) That that part, (laughs) but like, leave that in, um, is, is modeling something. I also, I really do believe I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that this softening, this awakening was not just among progressive Democrats. And there's this fiction now that gets reinforced by the way opinion poll questions get asked, among other things, that says that there's the enlightened left, the enlightened white left, and then there's the primitive racist white right. And it's just, I am so... Committed. I don't believe that. And I'm so committed to figuring out what does it mean to, to, to keep that space so that everybody feels welcome. And I know that I, I don't, I don't judge you. I don't assume things about you. I just want to tell you a story like this is the kind of story that's not out there. I was speaking with a, an evangelical elder um, about this question of how do we, how do we make this conversation that's big and spacious and everybody is honored and welcomed, and we grow together. And he told me a story about um, a group he's in, uh, a, a, a couples group that they've been in forever, and everybody in there is a conservative evangelical. He's a conservative evangelical, but he was involved in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And so he he's like always had that in him, and it's very much integrated into his Christianity. He didn't vote for Donald Trump, but everybody else in the group did. Although they don't talk, they didn't talk about politics. But anyway, he told me a story about a, a, a man in that group. Uh, you know, these are people probably in their seventies. Mm-hmm. And there's there's also an African American man in the group. And so when all the protests started, this this white gentleman uh, had a conversation with his black friend, his same age, who's also conservative, and mm-hmm. was complaining about the protests and about black lives matter and isn't this overblown and this man who he'd known forever who is you know in his camp politically and 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 theologically mm-hmm. shared with him what it has been to be in his black body for 70 years in this country and it was a revelation to this to his white friend and this man this evangelical republican wrote a letter to his children and grandchildren confessing hmm. his sin and what he had not known and his shame hmm. at that hmm. and repenting in the best in the best tradition of of that of that faith and so like part of what i'm also committed to is being present to that kind of conversion hmm. that's happening quietly yeah
3: mm-hmm. yeah it,
1: when you have a real face to it, too, right? Um, yeah, that's really a great story. It's and a wonderful I agree. story. I, yeah, I think that I, I I I have faith that that is true. That that no, it's not just, and and I it's not just the progressive whites who have you know this aha moment and yeah. are, and it's really important that you know, the, you know, the nice, I'm a nice white person over here and you're the bad uncle over there, racist uncle over there. But That split is not going to work. It doesn't work. It's not helping. And it has to be, that's the divide that has to, of more so right now, I think, yes, the, the, the white bodies and the bodies of culture divide definitely has, but it begins by mending within our own. Yeah how we mend and come together and stop the divisiveness around, you know, I'm the good people, you're the bad people. Um, and cause, and, and cause everyone is also complicit to this system. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's, so I, uh, that brings me actually now to, um, Brian Stevenson who, um, is just, Ooh, such a joy. I, um, I've been three times now to um, the memorial and, and, um, the museum in Montgomery, Alabama. And his work is just so incredible. And I love, I want to a little bit also talk about the app. That yeah, well, that's connected. About. Yeah, it's connected. That's why I wanted to save it for last. I wanted to save it for last. Yeah. yeah. For last because yeah. You chose your first course yeah. on the app to be Brian Stevenson. And yeah. I love that you do that, Krista. Yeah. I love it. And this whole conversation about the muscle of hope yeah. and getting proximate. Yeah. All of that is so juicy. And I'm really interested in Mm -hmm. you talking more about that because I first I have to tell you, I have not really used the word hope much. Hope felt like something distant and I've never never resonated with it. And it wasn't until the lesson, because I took the lesson,
2: Oh, right. you did! Oh, oh, so you listened to it?
1: Oh, okay. yeah. oh yeah. yeah! I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna be your first yeah. collaborator. I'm gonna be the yeah. first. Be the <laughs> first, <laughs> first. <laughs> okay. I forgot okay. that, that. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And listening to it actually, and listening to the two of you, changed my mind about the word. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's never resonated with me as something. Hope felt too puffy. Mm-hmm. It felt like marshmallow. Yeah. You know, I think of, yeah. I think of like when. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. And
2: of course, it's is a muscle. Right. So the words I okay. don't use, I don't use the word optimism because it, because yeah, I think yeah. it's yeah. wishful thinking. No. Yeah. So Brian Stevenson, what is so amazing about him, you know, in, you know, in a, like everything he's created. But when I interviewed yeah. him, because I said, so, okay. So I, I get, you know, that you became a lawyer and you met somebody on death row and you ended up, you know, defending people and that expanded to, you know, children who are tried as adults and mentally incapacitated, The 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 cruelty and the dehumanization of our criminal justice system. And how does that turn into a memorial and a museum? And you know, <laughs> right. and I right? I mean and and what I understood about him and the, and the equal justice initiative is that they're 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 all they're a learning organization right so the more he got into what is so broken mm-hmm. uh, about our our criminal justice system reflects the brokenness in our society and goes back to a root dehumanization that was the root dehumanization of slavery And so what he started to realize is he could win, he could win court cases in the Supreme Court, but if they didn't start addressing the root causes, um, Mm -hmm. so that's what they've been doing and kind of
1: educating people.
2: Yeah, educating people. And yeah, for him. You know, hope is the insistence that it doesn't have to be this way, and it, but it's not a it's not an argument. It's not a cerebral insistence. It's a, I'm going to throw my life behind this insistence. And, you know, his yeah. point is that when that goes away, when people accept that something that this can't be changed, this is the way it is. When you get hopeless, that's when you get powerless. Hopeless. Um, yeah, so to put him as the first session of the course, mm-hmm. it was just so obvious. I mean, it was, was it? so obvious. That's so
1: many people. Wow. I it's was so, so obvious because that. he,
2: you know, what does he say? He says, hope is that thing that gets you up in the morning that, you know, that makes you stand up when people say sit down, that makes you speak when other people say be silent. It's, yeah, so that I've always yeah. said this, hope mm-hmm. is a muscle. This is something I started saying years ago but he yeah. actually explained it to me
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. well, and he says it's a superpower right it's a superpower it's very, i
3: I,
2: yeah.
1: I i loved it i loved it i loved it and i'm it's just a great place to begin with the app a little small commercial moment about the app if if you don't mind, I really, can you talk a little bit about what's, well, in, what's coming up?
2: Yeah. Well, we're hoping it'll launch in July sometime. It's in the apps. It's not out yet, but uh, I don't know when you're, when this is going to air. Um. Yeah. It's a, uh, so, it's a way to, yeah, soon. It, oh, okay. And it's a way to, um, you know, it, well, okay. So, so we started with a book I didn't write because it felt like I was correct. speaking to a far future and right. I realized that the app was a way to speak to the present. And and not just ah. speak to the present, to accompany the present and to pull, to, to, to bring forward these people who have taught me and, you know, taught by way of this weekly thing uh-huh. 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 to really bring them forward as the teachers they are. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And also to this conversation that they're in, in my head to make that, to bring that yeah. out. Oh, so,
3: yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and it just became, it's just been such an incredible creative project to, wow. to envision that and to get, for me to get into a new kind of conversation, you know, with, with the Brian Stevens, for example, like, as you heard kind of with that interview, um, dig into what is this, what is this teaching that's there? And what is the invitation that's there for anybody listening to begin living this way, practicing Qualities of character that may be unfamiliar, but can be practiced. Like it's a muscle that can be flexed. I go, I'm thinking about it as I've used this language of spiritual and moral calisthenics, so that's what this course is about. <laughs> but with the Brian Stevenson interview, the headline is Hope is Our Superpower. Um, and actually, evolutionary biologists are saying the same thing, which is fascinating. But his counsel, that, you know, a superpower is a little bit intimidating, but how do you start? How do you start? You get proximate, right? So his whole thing started with one conversation with one man on death row, and he was a law student and had no idea what he was getting into, and he started learning from there. And the question that everybody's asking, not everybody, but enough of us are asking is how do how do I begin to walk into what 2020 gave us to do? And, and we have to not do this American thing of rushing to, we need to do some discernment and some getting proximate and some, and listening and figuring out what we don't know enough about to formulate our action step. So we we need to be in discernment and walking at the same time. And he's also just so amazing about that.
1: I really love the intimacy of Mm -hmm. what I've, experience so far with the app, the small nuggets, and then that second section where you, yeah. is practice, yeah. where you actually are with us, the audience, and doing practice. And I just thought, this is going to be so rich. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really excited about this. This, And it's interesting for you to say, to full circle, how the book didn't happen
3: yes.
1: yet. And that this is the the accompanying people now.
2: Yeah. App.
1: It's like the 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 accompaniment app.
2: It's also me getting accompanied. Right? Yeah. It's okay. also me okay. okay. Saying, I'm I'm here too. Let's walk together.
1: Let's do it together. Yeah. It is really, um, and I, I just loved the, con- the whole conversation with Brian that you had and getting proximate. If you can just a little bit talk about when you say getting proximate,
3: yeah.
1: there's this physical proximity that he did with the person that yeah. he met, yeah. but then there's a spiritual proximity you talk yeah. about.
2: Yeah. Can
3: yeah.
1: You, yeah. Yeah. And, a I, bit?
2: and again, I think that we're so trained to do to do something. And we do need to do, but do. the quality yeah. of our presence, the quality of how we're gonna do that thing or be in that place, really matters and you know mm-hmm. the, the spiritual proximity is kind of getting getting grounded and inside yourself as you step into curiosity i mean curiosity is it it, it is is actually um in internal work as much as it's external work, and so it's so I think there are these ways that are that are simple, but actually muscles that can be withered. Um, yeah. So yeah, getting proximate is also orienting yourself. It's where am I going to look? Where am I going to listen? There's some there's some self examination about what what have I not been hearing? Where have I not been looking? And how do I kind of turn myself inwardly in a spirit of genuine curiosity towards that? So it's more than just a physical move.
3: Yeah.
1: I love that. I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. The pandemic. I'm curious, Mm -hmm. what was its biggest gift to you?
2: Mm. Oh. A discomfort, I'd say. Oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are other gifts and and there have been you know trials, but it did absolutely reorient me. So getting oriented to reality uh, in my body, in my circumstances meant that I needed to get really uncomfortable and understand that that is an invitation it's not going to kill me right it's going to live, still, alive. Yeah, still yeah. alive and it's for the rest of my life and it's the way of things and I'm not alone and I and I also want to help other people you know let other people know they're not alone in this
1: Thank you, Krista. Thank you Mm -hmm. for being with me today. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for being my friend as well. It's so wonderful Mm -hmm. to have you on the show. Yeah. Yeah. I love you so much. You are such a treasure. Mm -hmm. Such a treasure. And um, maybe we'll do a part two with Krista Tippett and Black Women. How's that?
3: Yeah. I love that. Okay. We'll do that one. Okay. Part two. (laughs) Okay. All
1: right. Thanks a lot, Krista. And I want to say that Krista Tippett um, resources um, that I want to share with you is OnBeing, OnBeing.org, OnBeing.org is the website. Uh, she has an incredible podcast. I recommend it very highly. Um, Becoming Wise and Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living is the book and the wisdom app that we just talked about that is launching July, 2021. Thank you for joining me. See you next
3: time. Bye-bye.